So, good morning, officially. Um, my name is Kazu, and I am the founder and the coordinator of an organization called the East Point Peace Academy. Um, I actually was in Berkeley on Sunday. Uh, was not, yeah, my back was just because I'm getting old and I try to put on my shoes. But um, so I think a lot of what's going on in the Bay Area nationally will be really part of the, the discussions that we'll continue to have over the next three days. But um, just wanted to give some brief overviews of, of my work and, and the kind of lineage that I come from. Um, does anyone know where the name East Point Peace Academy might come from? Some of you may have been to some of our workshops in the past, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, it's a play on words of the Military Academy at West Point. Um, I have the privilege of having been trained by Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who was one of the co-founders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he got his start in the movement in the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins in 1961. And for folks that know that history, uh, you know that the lunch counter sit-in movement was a movement that had chapters in hundreds of cities and towns across the South where uh, black and white students would go into segregated lunch counters and refuse to leave until they were served or until they were arrested, beaten, kicked out, whatever it was. And it took place in hundreds and hundreds of locations in the South. It started in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it just spread like wildfire. And even though it happened in hundreds of locations throughout the South, for some reason, out of the chapter in Nashville grew Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who went on to become the national coordinator for the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Diane Nash, who was one of the core leaders of the, of the, of the movement, uh, Dr. S uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was one of the, the core kind of elder um, ministers in the movement, John Lewis, who's still in Congress, um, James Bevel, who was perhaps the chief strategist of the civil rights movement. The backbone of the entire civil rights movement came out of this one small town of Nashville, even though the same thing happened in hundreds of locations throughout the South. And when historians look back at, at that movement and say what was so special about what happened in Nashville, they pretty much all agree that it was because of the training, that the leadership of the Nashville movement went through a nonviolence training that lasted almost an entire year before they were allowed to do their first protest. And that's how seriously they committed themselves to the idea of training for nonviolent action, right? That nonviolence isn't something that you can just read a book about or go to a three-day workshop and think that you understand. Um, I always say that nonviolence is like a martial art. Um, I'm a lifelong fan of martial arts, and, and, and I think there's a lot of parallels to nonviolence and martial arts, both in that no one would ever go to a three-day karate seminar and think they understand karate and think you can stop training in it, right? It's a lifelong training. And if you really want to get good at it and be able to use it in a real-life conflict, you have to be practicing day after day after day. If you go to a martial arts studio, you probably go there three, four times a week. And you do that for many, many years before you get to a point where those skills can actually be helpful to you in a real-life conflict. And nonviolence is very much the same way. And I also feel that nonviolence is not something anyone ever becomes. Right? It's not a thing to become. Just like if you practice Kung Fu, you never become Kung Fu. If you have a meditation practice, you, you never become meditation. If you practice yoga, you never become yoga. 
And in the same way, nonviolence isn't this thing to become as much as it's a way of life and a practice that we're trying to cultivate and, and just build up our muscles of nonviolence so that we can be a little bit more, um, that we can respond to conflict in, in healthier and healthier ways. And so the idea of the East Point Peace Academy is that we need to invest in training for nonviolence and training for peace at least as much as the military invests in training for war. Right? No matter what background that you come from, you have to go through at least a six-month boot camp if the, before you go off to war. And in nonviolence, I think we don't take this idea of, of, of training seriously enough, right? That if we're facing white supremacists in the streets, if we think we can just send people out with no deep understanding of what it means to practice nonviolence, then it's not going to be as effective as it needs to be. And so I'm someone who believes deeply in the, the importance and the investment of the practice of nonviolence and the training of nonviolence. Um, the majority of the work that I do is actually with incarcerated communities in, in the prisons throughout um, mostly Northern California, um, where I find is some of the best places in the world to recruit peace activists, right? Because no one understands better the impact that violence has had on their communities. And if we're really trying to cultivate a culture of peace, then we need to really take on leadership from the most impacted communities. And no one's been impacted more by systems of violence than the men and the women and the people in our criminal justice system. And so we have, as an organization, uh, probably about 40 trainers, incarcerated trainers in the systems who are going on to, to teach uh, their peers nonviolence. And we're starting to experiment with bringing folks from the outside into the prisons to learn about nonviolence from the inmates, from their wisdom and their experience. And so that's the majority of our work. But um, as you can imagine, since November or so of last year, we've been really busy doing work on the outside also because we really feel like there's, um, there's a really deep need. Uh, and there's always been a need, but perhaps now more than ever, to really understand how we transform conflict through nonviolence. Um, and through nonviolent social change. I think there's a lot of deep connections and intersections between Buddhist wisdom and the teachings of nonviolence. I think one of the, the biggest challenges that our society faces right now, and I've been saying this a lot, is there's this moment of urgency that we're in, right? With, with the Trump administration, with the rise of white supremacy, with, with climate change, with all of these things, it's such an urgent moment and it's important that we act now. And as much as I'm a, a committed practitioner of nonviolence and I will always advocate for nonviolence and I'm deeply troubled by um, some of what's been happening in the left around the country and we can talk about, about that over the next three days, I, I've been saying that the, the, the conversation between nonviolence and violence is a really important conversation and it's a really complicated conversation. What's much less complicated for me is the conversation between action and inaction. It's in this moment, it is really important that we find ways to be in action and to be struggling against the rise of hate and, 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 and all of what's happening in this world. Um, and, and to acknowledge, I mean, Dr. King 50 years ago talked about the urgency of now, right? That we have to act in this moment. And at the same time, we, we can't allow the urgency to bring us to a, a state of hysteria. And we can't respond to this moment of urgency coming from a place of panic, right? So the tension of a, like acknowledging the urgent moment that we're in while learning to continue to breathe through our resistance work is a real difficult thing. And I think that's why 
the intersection of Buddhist teachings and Buddhist Dharma and nonviolent uh, civil resistance work is so critical in this moment. Um, and, I, and I'll close for now with this one thing I was sharing with Donald recent, uh, just on the drive up here this morning, um, that Angela Davis gave a, a talk recently. And she was saying that we need to reframe how we're looking at our work. She was saying that we are not the resistance. We are not resisting Donald Trump. We are not resisting the alt-right. That progress is happening, right? That we are creating a society that is more and more equitable every single day. And Donald Trump is the one that is resisting that change, right? The alt-right is the one that is resisting that change. They are the resistance to the progress that is happening, to the progress that is inevitable, as long as we keep pushing for it. So all we need to do is to keep in mind that we are still the majority in this country and to continue to do our work to create beloved community. And that yes, it is an urgent moment, but we don't need to panic, that we don't need to be in hysteria. And I think that's so much the teachings of both Buddhist Dharma as well as the teachings of nonviolence is to learn to breathe through it. Um, I was at a conference recently and, and heard a woman, Renee August, speak and she said, that the difference between that, that, that the struggle for social justice is a marathon, not a sprint. And the difference between a marathon and a sprint is in how we breathe. So learn to breathe. And so I think that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about over these next three days is learning how to breathe through all of the madness that we're witnessing. Um, so I'll kind of stop right now with that and hand it over to Donald so he can more properly introduce himself. And then we'll jump into our first activity. Thanks, Hazu. It's, um, it's always nice to hear some of that background as well. And um, I'll introduce myself a little bit and give some also some uh, kind of larger perspectives on our three days. Um, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock and have been um, practicing insight meditation for about 40 years. Maybe I should be wiser <laughs> at this point, but. Uh, it's been it's been a uh, very powerful process of learning, and I've been privileged to study with I think some of the great teachers of the 20th and 21st centuries. A lot of the great uh, Thai teachers in the Thai forest tradition: Achan Cha, Achan Buddha Dasa, Achan Mahabua, a number of great uh, Tibetan teachers um, as well, and I've I've also had from a very young age, an interest in social justice. You know, my um, parents were activists, my, you know, grandparents and my grandparents were all uh, immigrants and they were very involved with social justice issues and the larger family. And so I kind of got that growing up. My parents actually uh, marched with uh, Dr. King in 1963 and were actually right at the head of the march because we were living around Washington, D.C. And, and they were one of the group that was hosting the whole march. And so they walked right near the beginning and I was told they, they sat 10 feet away from Dr. King with his I Have a Dream speech. And um, uh, I was alive at that time. I was invited to go, but I wanted to play. <laughs> so I, I missed this great chance. <laughs> so, anyway, that's... 
that happened later. Later, though, I I have also like Kazu. Uh, Kazu didn't mention, but he's actually been in learning situations with a lot of the people he named, and has been training with a lot of those amazing a lot of those people that came out of Nashville, Diane Nash, Bernard Lafayette, and others, and. I think we've both also studied with uh, James Lawson, who was the main teacher of nonviolence of that of that group in nonviolence, who did that year-long training in Nashville. That was 1960, by the way, in Nashville, which was the most uh, systematic training in nonviolence in the whole civil rights movement. And so I've also uh, been able to train some with James Lawson, met uh, Bayard Rustin and a number of the other of the uh, great figures, you know, uh, some of them through some of them through my parents' associations. And um, so that's been that's been uh, very important for me. And I actually was more of an activist before I started studying meditation, you know, from from a fairly young age as a teenager. And um, but I also was very concerned when I was, you know, coming of age about some of the tactics of the people on the so-called left that I saw around me, and I had a lot of questions, and um, things were unresolved for a long time. But at a certain point, when I was in my early 20s, I felt a very strong draw as well towards uh, spiritual practice. And uh, again, that's when I met a lot of the uh, uh, great teachers in different traditions, uh, particularly Buddhist tradition. I met uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield uh, when I spent a summer at Naropa Institute in Colorado and um, just started practicing with them, going, started going to retreats uh, not long after, and there was something incredibly compelling. And I still was very much interested in, the, in social justice and those issues, but there was a way that it was for, for particularly for a few years, it was very the the learning that was occurring in retreats and in that deepening, which was uh, started about forty years ago, uh, was very very compelling. And um, for a long time, I knew that they were both very strong interests, but I didn't have a way of bringing them together. Um, particularly because I was living for a time, I was uh, doing some teaching, living in uh, uh, rural Ohio and Kentucky. Not, not uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, teaching at the University of Kentucky. And um, I didn't quite have a critical mass there to bring together Buddhist practice and social justice concerns. But there, there were some, you know, I met Wendell Berry there, he was there, and some other really cool people. But so it took coming to California, and then everything started clicking. <laughs> Maybe like you. Uh, and I started meeting people, not just in uh, Buddhist circles, but also uh, Christian, uh, Jewish, Islamic people who wanted to bring together uh, spiritual practice and social justice concerns. And I found myself gravitating pretty soon to working with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, uh, which I worked with very extensively for about uh, 15 years. And, and started along with Diana Winston, who's also a Spirit Rock teacher, developing training programs. And that's been one of my main ways that I've participated in this uh, intersection of inner work and social justice, has been developing training programs 
for people doing social service and social change work. And uh, have done those through Buddhist Peace Fellowship with a program called the BASE program, which stands for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement. We did about 30 six-month training programs. Uh, also, I uh, was uh, involved with a more academic program, which was an interfaith program with Saber Graduate School, which we did for nine years, which was a two-year program in, in which we looked at multiple traditions, <laughs> Jewish, Christian, Islamic, indigenous, and so forth, and uh, quite wonderful. And then also a program at Spirit Rock <coughs> called The Path of Engagement. Um, and so that's been really a lot of my interest. And in that um, process, it's been really um, important to uh, say that what I found in really connecting in a pretty rigorous way inner practices with more uh, interact, uh, interactive, relational, and social practices, what I found was that the basic dynamics are the same, whether you're doing inner practice or you're doing uh, nonviolent action. And that, that'll be a theme which we'll bring out during these three days. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring it out a little more explicitly this afternoon. But there are very strong affinities between the, particularly Buddhist meditation and nonviolent action. That we're in a way really trying to uh, transform the tendencies to be reactive. And violence is almost always a form of reaction to be reactive and to be unaware of our own conditioning. In other words, we would say to come out of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that in many ways we do inner practices which get at the inner roots of violence. And we could do outer practices which bring uh, that understanding out into the world. You know, Dr. King, for example, very much saw his own work as an expression of Christian love. You know, and I think Cornell West once said that uh, justice is the public face of love. Very, very nice statement. And, and he said that until he read Gandhi, he was confused and he thought that this idea of love only made sense in one's own personal life and in face-to-face -face relationships with others. That was his sense, that Christian love did not make sense when you brought it into the larger social realm. You start talking about nations and states and governments and so forth. He didn't think it made sense. He thought it just had to do with how you are interpersonally and with your own mind and so forth. And he said, after reading Gandhi, he said, I saw how mistaken I was. And so he had a very uh, explicit sense of bringing, we might say, the purified mind, heart, and body into the larger world. And if you read some of the materials, uh, whether from Gandhi or for King, you see, can see that there's a very uh, clear way that training in one's own inner state, 
training in love, we might say, training in wisdom, goes hand in hand with acting. And you can see that in the, some of the documents, you know. Uh, I remember, you know, you may know this document, Kazu, I think there's a document from the 1963 Birmingham March, which it, it, the uh, marchers had to agree to 10 guidelines. One of them was, walk and talk in the manner of love, for Jesus is love, <laughs> right? And so there was very much, uh, you know, the question is, how do you do that? How do we, how do we have our own inner purification, as it were, be connected with what we might call the purification of society, if we want to use that language, or the development to more and more care, love, generosity, uh, empathy, compassion, and so forth. And so there's this way that, uh, you know, from my own purview, the kind of inner training that we have in Buddhist practice is unparalleled the level of detail and understanding for how to train the mind, how to train the mind and heart to develop uh, kindness, to develop love. It doesn't mean we don't have plenty of kind and loving people everywhere, but the training is something special. That's why at Spirit Rock, we have um, Christian uh, monks and nuns, rabbis, they come to do our trainings. You know, and they're very much you know, dedicated to their own traditions, but there's something very special in the training of the mind, the training of the heart, the training of the body. And to connect that with the nonviolent training, and I think in that connection, it's also creative. Something new comes out of this. It's generative. There's something creative in this meeting. And that's part of our horizon for the three days, that we want to really uh, give room for that creativity and, and these traditions, which in many ways have not been brought together in a mature way. That's, I think, one of the horizons of our times. Uh, we can see examples, you know, maybe someone like Thich Nhat Hanh in the Buddhist tradition, or we can see, you know, again, learn so much from Gandhi and King. But that, uh, that horizon, that, that will be, so will be at times going back and forth and seeing this perspective, seeing the connections, seeing how we can um, have an integrative vision of a, a kind of deep uh, cultivation of inner nonviolence and outer nonviolence. And again, like Kazu, I think that this is very, very crucial for our time. Uh, we'll probably be emphasizing King a little bit more than Gandhi, but we'll be bringing Gandhi a lot. Uh, but I, I remember that uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, some of you know, who was uh, one of the great uh, prophetic rabbis who died, I think, 1971, but he walked in uh, Mississippi with Dr. King. You, you may remember he has a very famous line where he says when he was doing the walk in uh, Selma, he said, I felt that my feet were praying. <laughs> He also said that the future of America depends on how it relates to the legacy of Dr. King. It's quite a strong statement. So I think we're all very much uh, aware of the um, urgency of the present time, again, along a number of different issues. And we, you know, we want to um, 
you know, give room at times for us to really explicitly refer to what our feelings are, our thoughts, our hopes, our confusions, our, our fears, and let that, you know, we, we know that that's part of the backdrop for what we're doing these three days. So I think I'll, I'll end there, and we'll, um, uh, maybe I should just say in terms of logistics that uh, we will typically not go for more than an hour or an hour and a half without walking meditation, which is a main time to use the bathrooms. <laughs> and that uh, if you, uh, you can see, see it more or less on the schedule, but if you at any point uh, need to use the bathroom, uh, feel free to get up. But we'll have, I think from now, we'll have our walking meditation will be in, in about uh, 50 minutes. Okay, thanks. So I wanted to share Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.